Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What was behind the reason that the raid happened on the former president's home down in Florida? Was it because of nuclear secrets? What are we learning? Well, joining us now for more on that is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so at first we heard from the Attorney General that they were going to ask the judge to unseal the warrant. But then yesterday, late yesterday, we started to get some information from some newspapers saying that they knew what was in the warrant. Yeah, the Washington Post reporting that uh, some of the documents that might be at Mar-a-Lago may be linked to nuclear weapons, and it doesn't go much further than that, so we don't know if that means that it could be linked to U.S. nuclear weapons or linked to nuclear programs from somewhere around the world. I think the broader way to look at this is those are some of the most um, highly kept top-secret uh, items in U.S. government, and they were in a, you know, what is essentially a public club in Mar-a-Lago, and that really could um, be, you know, the key to why everything happened in such an expedited manner and in such a, a kind of bold manner with the search that was carried out on Monday. Okay, so at this point, look, what is the process like? What did the Attorney General have to say yesterday? So, look, the Attorney General came out uh, and made a couple of announcements. Number one, that he signed off on the search warrant himself, which had been speculated. Uh, we knew this was going to have run up the highest rungs at the Department of Justice. Uh, he also came out to kind of lambaste Republicans and members of the Trump base for making threats against law enforcement agents, either at DOJ or FBI, saying that these people were simply just doing their job, but also making the point here, Simi, that none of this would have been in the public sphere had Donald Trump not put this out in a statement on Monday, this would have remained a quiet operation because very rarely do things leak out of uh, of the Justice Department. So this really is kind of a situation of Donald Trump's own making. The other announcement here was that the DOJ has gone to court to unseal these warrants because there has been such a pressure campaign to publicize what has already been a very public moment. So is that the argument that they're going to be making before the judge in that we were going to keep this quiet? Nobody would have known, but since the the former president made it public, now we are saying, let's make it public. That is their argument, that, that the public deserves to know because there has been so much pressure to do this. But it is worth pointing out, and we have said this time and time again over the last week, they didn't need to go to court to do this. Donald Trump could have released the warrants linked to the search uh, on Monday afternoon when this was being carried out. He instead said that he didn't have that. We found out yesterday from DOJ that Trump's counsel was on scene uh, during the time that the, the search was being conducted, which stands in the way uh, of, of, you know, Republican talking points that evidence could have been planted when when Trump's own lawyers were there. But even the statement that Donald Trump released last night that uh, he wants these documents released immediately, he could do that. He could he could end this and get in the way of these denials that are coming out from Republicans and himself. But he's not doing that. And his lawyers have until three o'clock D.C. time to approve or deny 
what the DOJ is asking for. Hmm. Okay, so what do we know about these nuclear secrets? Well, look, we know very little. Um, We know that this is a possibility. We know that if it is nuclear secrets, that is the reason that this happened uh, so quickly. The question is... Why would the former president bring these kind of documents out of Washington to Mar-a-Lago? And if it was by accident, uh, you know, this has been a more than year-long battle between Donald Trump and the Presidential Records uh, Act and National Archives. Why has stuff been held back even when other boxes have been returned? You know, top secret was returned, classified was left behind, but clearly now others were left behind. So what is the reason? National security is a very clear uh, concern here, especially for leaders uh, in Washington, because it raises questions. Was there a potential here that America's interests elsewhere in the world were potentially going to be sold off to an adversary to give an idea what was happening and what is happening inside the U.S.? There's a lot of speculation, a lot of concern, and that can obviously lead down a lot of, you know, what if paths that ultimately can lead to, you know, more rhetoric being put out there. But in a serious matter like this, those questions need to be raised because it's simply, according to the DOJ and FBI, it doesn't make sense as to why nuclear documents would be at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, it doesn't make sense. Okay, so what has the reaction been like to this, Reggie? Because I know in the beginning, you know, for the first couple of days, you had a lot of people, you know, behind the president on the Republican side saying this is outrageous. Did that change in the last 24 hours? Has that been tempered at all? Well, sort of yes and no. Republicans yesterday were still pushing back, blaming the FBI for being politicized, blaming the attorney general for being, uh, you know, an arm of the White House, even though the White House has come out to say, look, we had no prior knowledge of this search. We had no prior knowledge that the AG was going to make this announcement uh, on Thursday. Trump's base, Trump's lawyers, Republicans in general really have been using this as a moment to try and prop up uh, the president, which, you know, in, in in different ways becomes problematic of its own because you have some people like Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence who want their own political futures in the White House now being forced to defend the president as opposed to looking at him, um, you know, in an adversarial uh, and competitive way. Uh, but number two, uh, I think what's kind of interesting to look at here is the, is Republicans, the, the Freedom Caucus, they were supposed to hold a news conference this morning public on camera about FBI. And as soon as this reporting came out last night, that news conference was canceled and will be quote unquote rescheduled. Does that mean that Republicans are now thinking we either need to change the narrative or find a new talking point? That's the new question, because this has been a party that has been destroying FBI and DOJ for what they call politicization, when it turns out that might not be the case. Right. That's the concern here, right? So I guess it sounds like it's very tense times in Washington these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, they, you know, we've been here before. We've done this. We, we've been on eggshells waiting to find out what's going to happen. We've also been in a situation before where numerous investigations have, you know, encircled the former president and ultimately nothing happens. And that really kind of gins up his base to say, look, this is simply an attack on Donald Trump. These are political rivals that are out to get the former president. But it needs to be said time and time again, Donald Trump could clear this up by putting the documents uh, out there in the public, and then it will be up to Republicans and his own base to take that and figure out how they are going to move forward with it. I think, you know, if you look at this more broadly, just, you know, above Washington, D.C., this is one crisis impacting the Republicans at the same time where Democrats are saying, look, have all these crises all you want. We're about to pass more legislation today. Joe Biden's not even in D.C., and Democrats are still walking away as winners. Okay, that's interesting. So what's the next step here, then, Reggie? You mentioned this. What is going to happen today with the court case? 
Donald Trump's lawyers have until 3 o'clock D.C. time, so just under six hours from now, to approve or deny this motion that's been put forward by Department of Justice to unseal these documents. That's if the former president doesn't get in front of this uh, and thrust everything out into the public sphere on his own. If they approve this, uh, there's a chance that the public will see what the warrant was. They will not see the detailed affidavit. Lots of stuff will still be redacted, but at least stuff will go to the public. If they deny this, it's going to create a, a court battle, but also more questions of why are you denying this? What are you trying to hide? What are you trying to hold on to? Either way, this becomes problematic for the former president if we see it or if we don't. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. How do we get ourselves out of this? Spending money, yes, but where? How do we do it? How do we make more family doctors available? There's lots of different ways that we can do this. And the BC Liberals are actually putting together a what they call a health care plan, a seven-point plan uh, to deal with this situation. It's a 30-day plan. So we thought, well, let's get the details on this. Let's see what these ideas are. Joining us now is Shirley Bond, BC Liberal MLA and the critic for senior services and long-term care and critic for health. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Pleasure, Simi. This was obviously, uh, you know, a long time in the making getting us to this point. I mean, you were also health minister for a time, too. Were there cracks in the system for a long time? Well, I think all of us recognize that our health care system is, has been under pressure. Um, we, however, did have a, a very specific plan about how to begin to address those challenges. And, Simi, the thing that I think is causing us the greatest concern is that as we travel across the province this summer, and talk to healthcare workers and patients across British Columbia, they will tell you that they have never seen it this bad. And so we decided that we needed to lay down a plan that the government could consider. So just over 30 days ago, we laid out a 30-day action plan. And yesterday, Simi, we added some additional specific steps that the government could take to begin to make a difference. Yes, we hold the government to account. That's our job. But we care most about British Columbians and making sure they get the health care options that they need and deserve. So in that plan, then, which are the points that you think could be implemented the most quickly that would have the fastest impact? Well, in our 30-day plan, we lay out uh, a series of steps that talk about what we need to do to fix primary care. And one of the most important things we need to look at is how are we going to retain the family physician's that we have in the system now. Many of those family uh, practitioners, family practice uh, doctors, run a small business and they are feeling the pressure of the uh, compensation model and the overhead that's created when you have to run a small business as well as care for people in the best way, which is of course longitudinal care. So we've said you need to, first of all, begin by having uh, a consultation cooperative approach and identify the issues. And we've certainly heard from, from physicians. I'm sure that, that the government is as well. So let's look at uh, how we deal with simplifying the fee schedule to look at reducing complexity. For example, we need to look at the onerous administrative burden. Yesterday, we added to that original 30-day plan by saying, look, we need to look, deal with uh, foreign-trained medical professionals, who many of them are Canadians who travel abroad to, to be trained in Ireland or Australia or the United States. Let's make it easier for them to get back into the system and get into family practice and working in our healthcare system. So it's a combination of 
retention, recruitment, dealing with the issues that we see on the ground. Now, I know this was attempted, oh, years ago, and there was resistance at the time, I think, even from doctors here. Uh, Do you think that attitude has changed now? Well, I think people have reached the breaking point. And one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about uh, as we travel across the province, we hear uh, and, and see firsthand the fatigue uh, we were, uh, our leader, Kevin Falcon, and I were, and other colleagues were recently in, in uh, Peace River, uh, of course. And we sat down with literally dozens of patients and healthcare workers in a roundtable. And it was unbelievable uh, to hear uh, the, the pressure that they're feeling. Uh, family docs simply uh, are trying to do everything they can to see as many patients as possible. But what we do know is that longitudinal care, caring for from someone from birth, to the grave is how we best care for people. And that's simply not happening for a million British Columbians. And so we know that uh, the stress is building, ERs are closing, we have overloaded hospitals. And from my perspective, uh, one of the most difficult things is seeing the burnout, the stress, the fatigue uh, in healthcare professionals. They simply can't keep it up. So together, we need to figure out how to fix this. Okay, so reduce the barriers for internationally trained physicians. What else can we do? Well, there's lots of things. And in fact, uh, we talked yesterday about expanding doctor training spaces. That doesn't fix things in the short term. But we called yesterday for an increase in the number of medical training seats from 288 to 400. We know that this government has added none uh, in the five years and two terms that they have been there. So we have to look at the short term and the long term. One of the big promises the government made was a second medical school, and that was going to be in Surrey um, at Simon Fraser University. No sign of that in the budget whatsoever. You have to deal with the issues in the short term by looking at international medical graduates, dealing with the compensation issues for family dogs, but you also have to have a plan that looks out to the future. Okay, and what about increasing the number of residencies? Do you think that would work? Absolutely. And and again, we have said that we need to uh, increase the number of residencies, particularly for international medical graduates. We want to see that number move from uh, 56 to 150 with the goal of continued expansion. And this is about, you know, as I've said, many of them are Canadians, Canadian students who have gone elsewhere. So we want to bring them back into the system and get them through the process more quickly. Not about diminishing standards, but getting rid of some of those barriers that, that are in place. And Simi, I think that's one of the ways that would most quickly impact the system. So we, say, we are saying to the government, here are some ideas that we've heard from across the province. Please take a look at them and let's try to, to, try to start making a difference uh, as quickly as possible. Okay, and one of the issues that we've talked about this week is the idea of pharmacists being able to prescribe medications mm-hmm. and really more readily renew prescriptions for people. What about that? Absolutely. That's included in the uh, policy discussion that we laid out yesterday. And, and it starts with a conversation. We need to talk to, to physicians and pharmacists and stakeholders on how we may potentially expand the scope of practice for pharmacists and have them be able to look at and prescribe medications for minor ailments. And we think the best way to do that, we've certainly heard from professional, healthcare professionals, is within a team-based care model. Absolutely, that is something that should be considered. Again, many jurisdictions across the country already do that. We're saying we can't keep doing the same thing. 
over and over again, putting more money, throwing more money at it, and expect better outcomes. We have to look at innovation and change. Now, you said that you've presented this plan, put it out there. Have you heard anything back from the government about this? Uh, Not a word. Uh, And in fact, I think that's the disappointing part for us. We understand that, you know, there's uh, it is that we we do have the responsibility to hold the government to account. And I do that regularly, as does our leader with Adrian Dix and the premier. But the the premier also, Simi, wrote in, in ministers mandate letters that they should work to take good ideas wherever they come from. And so we, we, we thought about this a lot. And, and in the end of the day, what matters most is the health of British Columbians. So 31 days ago, we laid out a plan and we said, here are some ideas, not ours. They were after we heard from healthcare professionals all across this province. Yesterday, we added the second phase of that plan to say, here are some additional things you could do. The most disappointing thing is this government promised a health human resources strategy. We need it now more than ever. It has not been delivered in over five years. So we said, here are some ideas. Please consider them. So today I would urge the government to look at the ideas that are in the best interests of British Columbians. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it, Sammy. Yeah, appreciate talking to you. That's Shirley Bond, the BC Liberal MLA and the critic for senior services and long-term care, also the critic for health, talking about the ideas they put forward. And listen, there's a lot in here. We've talked about this kind of stuff before. I do get the impression there's, you know, and I've said this before, a lot going on behind the scenes. We understand there's negotiations going on with doctors of BC to kind of change the fee schedule, you know, encouraging more family doctors to spend that time in practice, get more time with patients, get paid for that accordingly. But some of these other ideas, yeah, I I think they would be great. Allowing internationally trained physicians to work more readily here in BC. Why not? A lot of them, as pointed out, are from here and maybe they just went to medical school somewhere else. Well, they should be able to come back home and and practice, right? Uh, What about that new medical school? What about, you know, expanding doctor training spaces? So there's a lot of other questions here. You know, we wonder, is this going to be tackled? Do we have to wait for the budget to come out for that to happen? Or will we hear about it in the fall? This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. What is going on with our real estate sector in this province? It's been crazy the last few years, but let's face it, with that hike in interest rates that we have been seeing over the last few months, it has really changed what is going on in the market. The number of residential homes that were sold in BC dropped July over July, so from 2021 to 2022. But prices seem to be holding steady so far. So let's break down more about what's happening in our real estate sector. Joining us now is Brendan Ogmanson, who's the Chief Economist with the BC Real Estate Association. Good morning, Brendan. Morning, Jimmy. Great to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. So can you notice, like, the stats tell us that there really is a change going on in the real estate market right now? We've seen a really dramatic shift in the market, uh, you know, just since about February or March when the Bank of Canada started tightening rates and signaling that they were going to be much more aggressive in tightening rates than, than anyone anticipated. You know, we had a pretty strong first quarter. Home sales in the province were trending on a, a really strong pace. But really, since since those, the rate announcement and, and that more aggressive kind of pace of tightening, uh, we have seen uh, sales fall off. So in most parts of the, the province, sales are, are not just down year over year compared to like a strong 2021, but are like 20 to 25 percent below what's normal for this, excuse me, this time of year. 
Okay, that is a big difference then. But what is happening with prices? Prices are still up year over year on the backs of a really, really uh, strong kind of last 12 months, and especially a real surge in prices that happened towards the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. They did seem to have peaked in February. So if you kind of look market by market, most most regions have seen prices come down from February level. So in, you know, mostly in, in the, the regions that saw a really big run up during the pandemic, uh, like the Fraser Valley and Chilliwack, anywhere where there was that sort of surge in, in relocation demand and that shifted preferences towards, um, you know, more space to kind of get away from the pandemic at the time. Those markets that saw like 40% run-ups uh, during the last couple of years have probably given back about 10% since February. Oh boy. Okay. That is a big shift. So do we expect more of that to happen? I mean, I know that I think September 7th is the day Bank of Canada makes another interest rate announcement, and I'm sure it's going to be up again. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, we're expecting the Bank of Canada is going to do another you know, 50 to 75 basis points. I think they'll, they'll probably stop at between 3 and 3.25%. The really important thing at that meeting is what they signal about the future and whether or not they're finished raising rates or whether or not they're going to go beyond uh, uh, kind of a 3 to 3.25% policy rate. That's important because uh, uh, five-year fixed mortgage rates have already priced in a Bank of Canada at around 3%. If they're going to signal they're going to go even higher, that means five-year fixed rates, instead of coming down like they are now, uh, might end up going higher. Right, but we also have to deal with the psychology of this too, don't we, Brendan? Which is people who are going to put their homes up for sale, they don't want less than what their neighbor got for this. Yeah, psychology is always important in markets and especially in an emotional asset like housing. Uh, there's always a, a gap between what, what sellers' expectations are and what buyers' expectations are. And it takes a while for that gap to close. So sellers are always anchored to you know what the, what the highest price in the neighborhood was, most recent price. Buyers are always anchored to sort of the almost up to the minute kind of kind of price and their own expectations about prices. So uh, it takes a while for for that gap to close. We're starting to see it now with sellers becoming kind of less entrenched. Uh, it just in a normal market like like you know you know without like a lot of like panic selling, uh, which we don't have right now. In kind of normal market conditions, it takes takes a while for sellers to kind of get to where buyers are, and that's what we're seeing right now. Okay, so do you think that there will be some movement then in prices? We're seeing it now. I think that the big adjustments seem to have taken place in the first few months of Bank of Canada uh, tightening. So, you know, from about March to, to May uh, is when we saw the biggest adjustments. Those are starting to slow now. I think we'll just see markets more or less, you know, prices kind of stabilize from, from, from here. Okay. So what area would you single out then? Are there, is there like a, a neighborhood or a community where you're seeing the biggest kind of shift right now? It's really, you know, markets in, in, in the Fraser Valley and, uh, and you know, mostly the Fraser Valley. So, you know, we had a huge, what, what economists would call a preference shift during the pandemic, uh, where, you know, uh, people wanted large single-family homes. They wanted space for a home office, for, for you know, the kids to be home from school, uh, to, to entertain. 
that was more affordable in markets like Chilliwack and Abbotsford and, and, and Langley and Surrey. Uh, with, with prices in those markets going up you know, 40% over a couple of years and with mortgage rates going to above 5%, there's just way less demand at that level of affordability. Uh, and so those are the markets where we're seeing more weakness. And so it seems like we rushed out to do all this stuff during the pandemic, Brendan, and now we've changed our minds. So would you say, is the market going back to what it was in terms of what we're looking for prior to the pandemic? It's really tough. And these are the questions that we were asking ourselves, you know, during the pandemic was what is a whatever, I don't know if we can call it a post pandemic or the endemic phase. What does, what does this look like? And the big questions were, are those preferences still going to be there? Are people still going to want all that square footage? Are, are uh, workers going to be allowed to work remotely uh, as much as they thought during the pandemic? We're seeing some uh, workers being called back to the office, and that, that changes. If you're living in Chilliwack, maybe you don't want to make that drive three times a week. Uh, and uh, and how deep is kind of this, the scar on the psyche? We talked about psychology before. Uh, is there a deep scar on buyers thinking, I, you know, I want to be away from higher density cities in case this happens again. I want space in case this happens again. I think all of that's still being worked out. Right. But in the meantime, people have to decide, like some people might have probably put off selling their homes thinking that prices were going to continue to go up. And well, now they're faced with the, do I do it now or do I take a lower price? Yeah, it's always, always difficult to try and time the market. We've had a lot of volatility in markets over the past the past 10 years. So timing the market's always difficult. There's always going to be some people that, that kind of get out at the peak and some people that get in at the peak. That's just the way uh, markets tend to work. Yeah, see, I think we've been spoiled here, though, haven't we? Because people think that the market only goes in one direction, and that is not the case. <laughs> Yeah, you know, over a long time series, it does. But if you look at if you look at a kind of a chart of, of both prices and uh, uh, and uh, and sales, it, it's it's been a pretty volatile market over the past ten years. Yeah, I guess you, now when you say it, when you put it that way, and you think back, yeah, it actually seems like it has been. Brendan, thank you. Thank you. Brendan Ogbinson is a chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association talking about where we are at. The latest numbers out uh, for the month of July show that, yeah, that was a big switch. So the number of residential homes sold July over July, so 2021 to 2022, uh, definitely a downward trend. Fewer than 5,600 home sales in July. That was down 42% year over year. Now, during the pandemic, it did seem like things were kind of crazy out of control in terms of real estate, but that is lower than even the average. So not much sold in the month of July. And you can imagine that, you know, you're adjusting out there. You don't know what's happening with interest rates. Your mortgage suddenly got a lot more expensive. Maybe you're waiting. Okay. Maybe the prices are going to come down. Well, that still hasn't happened. Are sellers going to realize what's going on with the market and adjust their prices accordingly? This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, in a few months, if all goes well, you'll have a brand new restaurant to check out. I have a feeling, though, you might have some trouble getting a reservation because Rob Feeney would like you at least to try to check it out. It's been a few years since he put his name on his own plate place and plate, I should say. The one-time Iron Chef has been in charge of the menu at Cactus Club for more than 10 years, but now it is time for a change, and he joins us now to talk about that change. Hi, thanks for being with us. Hi, Sydney. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. So how goes it? Like, I know you're working in the kitchen these days. What are you working on? You know, um, uh, I'm just recently free of of Cactus. I just moved on 
uh, just within the last month. But yeah, this has been something uh, I've always discussed in the past, uh, even when I was with Cactus. Um, you know, I was, like I said, I was, I, I was with them for about 15 years and, you know, I wasn't really planning on staying that long, but, you know, it was a great company, great experience, um, amazing openings. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've always had the itch to go back and do my own thing. So uh, that's exactly what I'm working on. And, and uh, you know, obviously with COVID, uh, my original plan was to start back in 2019, but that kind of put things on hold. So um, yeah, I'm just looking at a few different spots right now. And, and uh, I live out in White Rock. So uh, I know everyone keeps asking me where. Yeah, where, and, where? Well, I mean, I, in a way, I want to keep it a secret, but um, more than likely, in, uh, downtown is kind of what I'm looking for. The west side where I was before, which where Lumiere and Feeney's was, that's kind of where I'm. The, the, the kind of general areas I'm, I'm, I'm looking for conceptually. Uh, I think that you know, people can kind of expect it to be along the Feeney's kind of line, the Lumiere bar line on the higher end of things, um, but also with a, with the potential to do something like Feeney's as well. So I have a few different concepts in mind. So um, I'm just, like I said, for me, I'm just excited to go back to do what I love to do. I mean, the last several years at Cactus, I wasn't really involved in the food as much as I would like to have been. Um, so this is just about me getting back to what I love to do and getting back to my customers. I mean, you know, I haven't lost touch with any of them, even after this long and like this lengthy period of time. I've been able to still stay in touch with them. It's been incredible since I've sort of talked about it yeah. with people. As I'm the, the response I'm getting, it's just it's nutty. It's almost, uh, you know, I've kind of kept it kind of to myself. And then uh, just this last uh, week alone has been, just been an ensemble of people going when. And um, I'm hoping to have it open by spring next year is kind of my thought process. Um I don't know. And, you, might, you might have to move it up, Rob. People seem very impatient about this. And I'm, I'm curious for you how the process is, is different. So when you're at Cactus Club, you were clearly developing dishes that would, you know, that would be served in a bunch of different restaurants. So it, is there a different thought process to how you create for this versus how you were doing it for Cactus? Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, it goes back to sort of my Lumiere and Feeney's format. I mean, you know, and even what I did on, on just recently in Iron, Iron Chef Canada, I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, the formula to what we did at Cactus was very simple, um, but, I, but at the same time, very hard. I mean, you know, making an individual dish in, in one restaurant uh, is obviously a lot easier to do than all of a sudden throwing it into 33 locations, right? So from a, from a creative standpoint, um, it gives me more freedom. Uh, it gives me more latitude um, and allows me uh, to sort of, you know, go back and do my own food again. You know, like the thing... Uh, uh, about Lumiere and Phoenix is I had a very particular style of food I did there. So people can expect to see that all over again, right? So they're going to see exactly what they had there. And which for me is, you know, I'm French trained with my Japanese background, um, you know, so the combination of both. And I, so I, that's what people are excited about. I mean, mm -hmm. they're like, I've had people even ask me, are you going to be serving this again? Are you going to be doing this again? So <laughs> I think that the difference is, is that, like I said, you know, it's is is that executing uh, one item in several locations is, is very hard to do. But I mean, we did it really well at Cactus, and they continue to do that really well. But I think here I get to just open my mind a little bit more. My philosophy has always been working with local and sustainable products, which is is will never change. Uh, I continue to do it now. This is a, a country for me. I've always been proud cooking in. 
and 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 not just myself, but a lot of the chefs across this country are, are about, you know, supporting local. I mean, you know, right. you right now look at everything. I mean, I'm still traveling to markets. I haven't, you know, I still I cook a lot at home. I still uh, cook privately for people as I get ready. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm very much um, uh, excited about going back and and basically be giving people a taste of what they expect from Rob Feeney, and that's what I'm going to be doing. So a lot's, uh, lots changed, though, Rob, in the in the food scene, right? Since you last put for, your own name on a plate, and you're talking about people wanting you to do what you did before, but I'm sure part of you is thinking, "Oh, I've got to try something new." I, there's all this stuff that I have been waiting to try. Yeah, you know what? I mean, one thing I've really learned over time is that. Um, uh, is that continue to be myself. So I don't think that I'm going to try. I've just learned, I mean, at my age, I've been doing this, oh my God, for over 35 years. So um, I, 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 I'm going to just, I'm going to be myself. I'm not going to try and recreate the wheel and try <laughs> to define food because, you know, the, the, the things that have stand true, to, you know, and stand in true in terms of time and you look in Vancouver, for example, and restaurants that have been around a long time. And, you know, my mentors, Michelle Jacob and Umberto, they continue to, to do the same thing day after day and they're full every night. So that tells you something. I mean, for me, yeah. I'll go back and do my thing. And, you know, the only change, if anything, for me is COVID has is, is definitely changed a lot of things in terms of, you know, finding staff and finding people. And and that's that's the big the, the big the big trick right now is basically you know outfitting your restaurant with staff. That's that's the hard part, you know. Um, yeah, well, that's for everybody the, though. That's yeah. So the food part though is at, like everyone asks me that question. It's like you know I remember Gail Simmons, who I you know who is a good friend of mine that I that was uh, that I worked with on Iron Chef Canada, and you know she's you know, always been a huge supporter of my restaurants in the past. And she always, she even said when I just saw her in Toronto a couple of years back when we filmed Iron Chef Canada, like she goes, because I talked about opening then, she goes, as long as you just do what you've always done, Rob. And that's true. And that, and that means for me, I want people when they, like right now, tomatoes are in season. And yeah. I just want them to taste the tomato. I want them to taste the food. I want to take, I want them to taste. I have a very clean approach to food and wow. Rob, I'm going to say you're now making me hungry is listening to you talk about food. But listen, I need need you to do something for me then. So when you do decide and you know what it's going to be and you know what it's going to be called, you know where it's going to be, you're going to come back on the show and tell us, right? I will be doing that very shortly because it's coming together very quick. Okay. I expect to hear from you then. Have you back to do that, okay? Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on. And we are excited to hear more about it. Rob Feeney coming back, opening his own restaurant. Yeah, you will hear it right here when that happens. Uh, Thanks so much for Rob for joining us this morning.